Good morning. Have you ever choked yourself in public drinking water? It's not a good idea. Not a good idea. I wouldn't recommend it. It's good to see you here this morning. We're very thankful for your presence. Always thankful to our Heavenly Father for yet another opportunity to come together and to praise His holy name, and certainly He is worthy, and to fellowship one with another and hopefully grow and be encouraged and edified as a result of our time together. If you have your Bibles this morning and you turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6 is where we will be this morning. Just by way of reminder, this is a series of thoughts that actually began with uh, the thought of being made in the image of God and what that meant and means. And so we talked about truth to begin with because of the power of truth and what truth does. Jesus will ultimately say that truth sets us free. And then we talked about the truth about you. In fact, if we're going to believe the truth, well, what does the Bible say about you? So we need to believe that truth and then live it out in our lives. We talked about and asked the question, what does God's image mean to you? And then we talked about the fact that God's image means love. God is love, and ultimately God demonstrated and manifested that love. And he loves us before he made us. He loved us because he made us. He loves us when in every part of our lives. When we're in fellowship, he loves us. When we leave him, he loves us. And when we return to him, he loves us. Love doesn't mean he approves of our actions, but he never stops loving us. That's what that means, and that's what it means to share his image. And we talked about last week that God's image means you are not a slave to sin. We are not in bondage to sin. We don't have to keep sinning, and that's what we talked about. And it was about that time that we pivoted and then talked about how to change. And we looked at then and began to look at some practical things because sometimes the question is asked, I hear what you're saying, but how do I do it? You're telling me that I need to change from the inside out. Okay, I got it. I need to change, but how do I do it? And so we said we're going to skip the sermon portion and we're going to jump straight to the practical application. And we did that. If you hope to change, transform, stop serving sin, we said you have to start thinking inwardly. You have to begin in your mind and in your heart and stop thinking outwardly. We're not going to be able to change the world. We're not going to wake up suddenly and the world won't be lying in wickedness and it won't be sinful. That's not going to happen. And we can't ask the world to suddenly like us and to suddenly embrace us and to suddenly just everything be good. It's not going to happen. Stop trying to change things you can't control. You can't control the world. You can't control other people. There is someone you can control, and as you can see, we are quite a handful to control. You've been at it for some time, trying to control you, and that's the only thing you can do. The Bible calls it self-control, not controlling another. And so we said you have to think inwardly. To that end, we said you have to find out your why. Why are you doing what you're doing? If you want to stop serving sin, you have to address the why. You know the what, very likely, if you're struggling with something, maybe another day, another time we'll talk about temptation and overcoming it, how to do that. 
But this is sort of in that vein. You have to deal with you. Why do you do what you do? Why do you want what you want? That's so critical if you're going to change. Deny the lie that sin is good for you. Sin will lie. It deceives. It's not true. And so sin will tell you, I'm good. We're enjoying this. This is a great life. In fact, you should get other people to join us. And even now, if we don't have a good time, we're just going to party in hell. Not true. Not true. Luke chapter 16, that rich man does not want any company. Please go back and tell my brothers, do whatever it takes, but don't let them come to this place. Sin is lying to you. And so we talked about that. Embrace the danger if you don't change. That was the last point in the last sermon. What if you don't change? Paul explains, the Bible explains, there is with every one of us a start, a journey, and a destination. It's always like that. And the Bible talks about walking and entering a gate, walking a path, and being led to a destination. And there are only two options. Either we're going to live with God. If we enter the narrow and walk the straight, we're going to eternal life. But if we enter the broad and go the wide, we're going to end in damnation. There's not another option. And so you have to embrace the reality. What if I don't change? Not only are you going to trouble and challenge your life now, you're going to put your soul in eternal peril. You're going to lose your soul if you need to change, and sin is involved, and you don't change. The end of that is the loss of your soul. In the short term, though, you might pass that on to other people. If you need the change and you don't, what are your children going to learn? Sometimes you hear people say, I'm the first generation Christian in my life. Well, will there be a second? Other people can say, well, I've been a Christian. My mother was a Christian. My father was a Christian. My grandfather was a Christian. My grandmother. What do they do? They pass it on. You're going to pass on something. Your children can't grow up without your influence. You're going to teach them one way or the other. If you need to change and you don't, what about your children? What about their children? You know it's possible to affect five, six generations from now. I tell people sometimes when they're going to have, they're going to get married, I ask them, do you know what's going to happen when you have children? They say, yeah, we're going to have children. That's great. I say, have you thought about what that means? Children are a lot of things, but cute little playthings are not what they are. They're not. You know what children's are, I can tell you. You know, we tell people we can't read the future, and that's true. In the absolute sense, that's absolutely true. And yet, I can stand right before you and tell you I can see the future. Oh, I can't get specific. But in a general way, I can tell you. Here's what's going to happen. You bring that beautiful baby, boy or girl, home. You're going to love all over them. And you're going to rear them. What's going to happen? Everything being equal, they're going to grow up. That's what's going to happen. They're going to move from the crib to 2, to 4, to 6, to 8, to 10, to 12, to 15, to 17, to 19, to 20. At some point, sin's going to enter their life. They're going to be accountable to God. What you have in your possession is not just a cute little baby. You have an eternal soul in your possession. And that soul has to live somewhere eternally. Who's going to have a tremendous amount to say about that? You. If you're going to change, how do you do it? That's what we find ourselves this morning. Practically speaking, 
What can we do? If you were counting, this would be number five in our points along the way. It's in chapter six of the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles and you're there, we'll discuss. We'll lead with this thought. Consider yourself properly. Paul's going to talk about the gospel in this book. He's going to talk about how God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Ultimately, how God changes people through the gospel. That's what he's going to talk about. Justification. A man will be declared right by God through the gospel. Paul talks about that here throughout the book of Romans and specifically here in chapter 6. And he will use this word later in the text. We'll talk about it. But he will say, consider. Consider yourself properly. The King James will have the word reckon yourselves. It means to take inventory. That is, estimate. Conclude. Estimate what? Conclude what? Something about yourself. I'm going to say you have to consider yourself properly, and then we'll note several other things. The reality is this. Our success in life has much to do with the way we think. The way we think about God, self, others, about the world, and about sin. And so Paul will say, consider yourself, and I will ask you repeatedly, what do you think of you? Let's begin here in verse number one. Paul says, consider yourself as a new creation, a new man. Beginning in chapter 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid, or may it never be so. How shall we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we too should walk in newness of life. What is Paul saying in these first four verses? Paul is saying you are not a sinner. How do you consider yourself? One of the more sad things in the world is to hear Christians refer to themselves as sinners. And hear them refer to other Christians as sinners. In fact, people sometimes are fond of saying it. I don't know what they think it means, but we're all a bunch of sinners. Is that how you consider yourself? It's not how Paul considered it. In fact, Paul says, you've been born again. When did your life change occur? When did you become new? What happened after your birth? Paul says in verse number three, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What's the result of that? Verse number four, therefore, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, like as Christ raised from the dead. Even so, we walk in newness of life. When did all this occur? Verse number three, you submitted to Christ. We use the expression, obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. We are called by the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, and to all those who have not obeyed the gospel, that's when it occurs. You submit to Jesus, you obey the gospel. Verse number 17 of this chapter, Paul says, but thanks be to God, you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form, pattern, tupos of doctrine which was delivered you. Sometimes, because maybe of a misunderstanding, some people get tired of the Lord's church talking about the plan of salvation, that you have to do a particular thing in order to be saved. This verse says you do. 
There is a form, a pattern of doctrine that you must obey. And when obeyed, what will it do? It will take you from a sinner to a saint. It will change you. How does it occur? He says, verse number one, verse number two, you accepted God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. What happened after that? You changed your mind. You know, when we talk about baptism, it's important for us to make sure we're saying biblically what the Bible teaches about the subject. We aren't just trying to get people into the water. That's not the goal. We're not quote unquote, taking the gospel to all the world to make sure God doesn't get us. Boy, if we don't share the gospel, we are no good Christians. If we don't share the gospel, we're going to lose our souls. If we don't share, what? we're going to fill our buildings with more and more people. For what? No, not only do we need to think about it correctly, we need to impress upon the person that they think about it correctly. You know the kind of language Paul's going to use in this chapter is entirely different sometimes in the way people hear it presented. You're over here in sin. Yes, he's going to use words like bondage and slave and servant. To what? Sin. It's dominating your life. How do you get out? Baptism. You change your mind over here. The Bible will say, repent over here. One of the reasons that we struggle so much over here is nobody convinced us to change our mind over here. You make up your mind to stop sinning over here. And then you get baptized and Jesus washes you clean. And then you come up on the other side. When did the change of mind occur? Hear, believe, repent. That's over here. A change of mind brought about by godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10. And that ultimately is going to result in a change of life. Paul says, when did all of this occur? Again, verse number three, do you not know? That so many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore... We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we too should walk in what kind of life? He's going to constantly go back and forth between old and new. This is a new life. What happened after you died? You buried the old man of sin. You rose and walked in newness of life. What's the result of that? Look at verse number 5, 6, and 7. There Paul says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that this, our old self, was crucified. We often talk about the Lord's crucifixion. When's the last time you thought about yours? Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. What are you crucifying, Paul? My passions, my pride, my propensity to continue to live a life for me and not for him. I crucified it. What did you do? I put it to death. That's the language that's going to be in this verse. These verses is about death and about life. And it's about burial, and it's about resurrection, and it's about old, and it's about new. The person over here is patently different than this person. And this person was aware that I was going to be changed. 
I'm going to Jesus not to come out a sinner. I've already been that. I'm going to Jesus not so I can keep thinking the same way. I already do that. Let this mind be in you, which you brought with you into Christ Jesus. Mm -mm. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. When you come out, I want to think like Jesus. I want to live. That's the point. And so he says in verse number, six, verse number six, you crucified your old self in order that the body of sin might be destroyed, done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves or servants to sin. It is a mind of bondage. That's what it is. We're no longer doing that. As a result of that, he says in verse number 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. That's the language. You die and you're free. You were in bondage, but not anymore. You were alive to sin, and now you're dead to sin, and you're alive. That's the very next verse. Consider yourself alive with Christ. Notice verses 8, 9, and 10. There he says, now, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You die and you live. In fact, the, the, the baptism that we go through is called the first resurrection. And John will say in the Revelation, I think chapter 19, he will say that those who partook in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. Well, what's the second death? It's not the body going back to the dust. That would be the first death. What's the second death? The second death is when the eternal soul is cast into eternal damnation. Paul says, those who, John says, those who partake in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. They have died and they live. They were in bondage, but now they're free. And who do they live with? We live with Christ. In fact, verse number 9 says, knowing that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, it's never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's going to move seamlessly back and forward between Christ and us, between his actual death, burial, and resurrection and our spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, in our baptism, we imitate his. And so whatever he is, we are. And as Christ died once for sin, he will say, he rose never to die again. We die, we're buried, we rise, and we're free from sin. And so he says, consider yourself alive with Christ. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again, death no longer has mastery over him. For he, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives unto God. And so he says, consider yourselves alive with Christ, living with Christ, living like Christ, and living for Christ. When you get up in the morning, what's the goal? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know a thousand times. I know you have a lot of stuff to do. I know it. I know you're busy. In fact, if you're like most people, you wake up feeling behind. You wake up at 4.30, I'm pretty sure you should have woke up at 3.30. And you wait, no matter where you wake up, you're like, man, I got so much to do, so much to do. I'm not talking about punching checklists on the clock. I'm saying with regards to your life, the goal in life is to live with Christ, to live for Christ, to live with. That's, I'm going to be like him. When did it occur? Hold your finger here. 
and look over at Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about the same thing, slightly different language, but you can see it again. Maybe, and, and maybe this language helps a little bit, shed a little more light. In chapter 4 and verse 17, he, he talks about the Gentiles, and he says to the brethren who were formerly Gentiles, you can't live like that anymore. That's verse 17 down to verse number 19. In verse number 20, he says the reason for that is, but you did not even learn Christ this way. You didn't learn that. You learned something new. You learned someone new. Notice verse 21, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught by him, just as the truth is in Jesus that in reference to, know his expression, your former manner of life. See chapter 2 in the first four verses of this book to hear him talk about the former manner of life. He says in reference to that, what should you do? Lay aside the old self. What's the old self? You know the old self. It's the self that says, I live for me. It's the self that says, I think about me first and foremost. I got to get mine, and I can't let people take advantage of me. And this person would think, service for what? I'll serve if it does something for me. I'll give if there's some benefit for me. But to just do—no, that's not the mindset. The mindset is get ahead, get there, get, get yours, get, get, do everything for you. Paul says, listen, what you want to do is you want to put aside the old self. In the book of Romans, he used the word crucify. He says, you have been taught in Jesus, your former man, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. You'll want to remember those words because he'll use them in Romans chapter 6 as well. What are you considering, Paul says? Number one, consider yourself a new man, a new creation. Consider yourself alive with Christ. Thirdly, consider yourself dead to sin. Notice the first part of verse number 11 in Romans 6. He says, even so, the even so is connected to the words that just came before it, even so in light of 7, 8, 9 and everything that preceded it. But he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to sin. He earlier talked about being freed from sin dead to sin. Folks who are dead to sin can't live in sin. John will say it that way in 1 John chapter 3. If you'll read 1 John chapter 3, you'll hear him talk about God's love and, and how those who live righteously are righteous, and those who are not God's children are children of the devil, and how he says the, these individuals who are righteous, they cannot sin. That's actually what John says. They cannot sin. Now, when you hear that, it kind of seems odd, of course, because in chapter 1, John says, if we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. And then in chapter 2, in verse number 1, John says that God has made provisions. These things I write unto you that ye sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. So then what does John mean? If he doesn't mean we don't sin ultimately and in the end, what the, John is not saying that a child of God can't sin. 
What John is saying is a child of God who has God's seed remaining in him can't live a life of sin. It's no longer dominated by sin the way they once were. What would prevent that change of mind? No, the person over here is freed from sin. The person over here is dead to sin. And so he says, and you can no longer live in it. In fact, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. And what happens if you're dead to sin? Look at the rest of verse number 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This idea of death and life, you're not in both places at the same time. To be dead to sin is to be alive to God. To be dead to God is to be alive to sin. To be dead over here is to bury the old man and rise and walk in newness of life. What happens? He says death gives rise to life. Go back to verses 3 through 5. How did we become alive? Do you not know? Many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and the death, so that like as Christ raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, even so we walk in newness of life. How did the new life occur? We died. We buried the old man. What happened then? We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, if we died to sin, we buried the old man, we rose and walked in newness of life. What happens next? Verse 6, verse 7, knowing that the old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be destroyed, with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed. What happens next? Well, now that you're free, you have choice. That's what freedom brings. Freedom brings choice. And now, as a freed person, you get to choose. And so, what does Paul say in verse number 11? You are alive to God. Consider yourself then a free servant of God. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. What does this freedom bring? It brings empowerment. And so that's the very next thing he says. Consider yourself empowered. Notice verse number 12. Paul therefore says, therefore. Therefore, in light of everything that's been said, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Paul's point is you have the power now in your life and mind to live for God. You are not a victim. Sin cannot control you. You don't wake up in the morning as a child of God, go out into the world, and then whatever the world does, that's what your life is. That's not who you are. You don't live a life now where you're completely out of control with no say of what happens in your life, with no governance over your life. That's not what happens at all. Not this person. This person's free. Free to do what? Well, anything you want to. What do you want to do? I want to live for God. That's why I came to him. I came to him to get out of this. This is a terrible life for me. I don't want it anymore. 
I was lied to. I was tricked. I was deceived. I don't want it. I want him. But well, guess what he is? Holiness and righteousness. That's what he is. That's what I want. Sign me up for that. You know what you can do? You can live that way. You have the power. You are a free servant of God. Here is the deception. Sin seeks to trick you. Sin seeks to deceive you. Sin wants you to believe you can't live without it. Sin wants you to believe there's something in your life you can't get rid of. I know you have made a few changes, but this one right here, we're going to keep doing this one. You can't help it. Sin whispers in your ear, no matter what you do, you can't get away from this one. Mm-mm. Once this, always this. Sin will have you believing the world is against you, people is against you. No matter what happens in your life, it inevitably is going to go bad. You know it. Sin knows it. And so let's just cozy up here together and comfort each other. You know it. Sin will have you second-guessing everything, even when it's good. person walked through the building this morning. Somebody greet them and say hello, and sin will say, see there, I told you. What'd they do? They said, hello, see there. Would you come sit with me and so we can just grow together and love each other? No, watch them, watch them, watch them. Sin will have you believing everybody knows your secrets. Sin will have you believing everybody is aware of every evil thought you've ever had, everything you've done. Sin will deceive you as it tries to hold on. But it's like a bully that's been exposed because now you know. You know what Paul says, don't let it happen. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin dominate. Don't let sin rule your life. It's not your master. Don't let it happen. And sin will say, yes, I am. You need me. The only way sin can rule your life is if you give it permission, is if you give it your consent. Down in verse number 16, he would talk about presenting yourselves as servants. It's almost like going up to sin and saying, here I am, I'm your servant. It's like going up to sin and saying, I have no control over my life. You just do with me what you will. I'm yours. Paul says, don't let that happen. Verse number 12, don't let it happen. What can help you prevent it? Verse number 13, you have a new master. Verse number 13, he says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. In contrast, verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You know what sin needs? It needs your permission. It needs you to say, okay, I'll do it. When people have not changed inwardly, they always focus outwardly. And what they want to do is, in trying to fix this situation, they want to control what's outside of them. And so, you hear them say things like, man, the internet is so wicked. Television is full of filth. Is that true, by the way? Yes, no, maybe so. You can say yes. I ain't going to trick you. You can say yes. <laughs> it is. There's no other way to slice that. There's some terrible stuff on the internet, some terrible stuff on TV, absolutely contrary to the God of heaven. Horrible stuff. True, 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 true. Question. Does it have to show up on your TV? Does it have to be on your computer? How will you see it? It's interesting that Paul says, don't yield your members. Let me ask you this. What's your members? Have your hands ever done anything your mind didn't tell them to do? 
Have your feet ever gone anywhere your mind didn't tell it to go? Has your palate ever tasted anything that you didn't put in your mouth? I know sometimes you get fed, but you still had to say okay. Your members are controlled by your mind, which is why the scriptures keep emphasizing the change of the mind, because if you change the mind, you'll change how the mind directs the members. And so what does Paul say? Don't keep presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. You tell sin you can't use me anymore. You can't have my hands for that evil. You can't have my eyes for that wickedness. You can't have my ears for that. I'm not going to give you my ears for you to pump evil into them. I'm not going to give you my eyes for you to show me more evil, to entrap me into more evil. I'm not going to yield my members. What are you going to do? Note the rest of the verse. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You wake up in the morning with complete control of your members. What y'all going to do today? You tell sin you're fired. I got a new master. I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to use my members for righteousness. The same hands that can type on the computer something that's evil are the same hands that can type up something that's good. You know we talk about the internet being evil, but isn't there a lot of good stuff on there? Can't you find Apologetic Press on the internet? Can't you find PTP365 on the internet? Can't you find Westside Church Christ website on the internet? Can't you find that stuff on the internet? Can't you do it? What's the difference? I'm going to use my instruments for righteousness. Can't you use your tongue for good? You've used it for evil. You've taken that tongue, your member, with your mind telling your tongue, say something nasty. You did it. You took your mind, your member, and said, hurt them with that one. Get them with that one. You did it. You can do it. But you know what? We put that to death. And now we take that same tongue. The proverb writer says life and death is in the power of the tongue. Give life. You know how many times you can tell your wife I love you? Go and give me the number. I tell you, as many times as you want to. How many times you want to say it? I doubt she'll get sick of it. I haven't met a wife yet that said I'm so tired of this man telling me he loved me. I don't know what to do with myself. I just can't take it no more. Every day, all day, all he says is, I love you. Use your tongue for righteousness. You know how many times you can say to your husband, I reference you. I think you are the best man in the world. I'm so lucky to have you. I know that's more than I just said for the women, but I'm just saying. <laughs> the point is, how many times can you say it? You ever heard a man that say, my wife reverenced me too much? I mean, really. She actually thinks I helped hang the moon. Would you tell her I'm, I'm good for nothing? Would you tell her that? You ever heard a man say that? How many times can you hug your children? How many times can you take them into your arms with your members? How many times can you hold them close and say, I love you so much? How many times can you tell them you are so important to me? How many times can you tell them I just want what's best for you? How many times can you pick up a grandchild? Your hands, your arms, your feet, your legs. How many times can you use your... Friends, what are you doing? What are we doing? 
The Lord's church is not a collection of people who come to church to be entertained by preachers. The Lord's church is not a group of people who come to a club and say, we just going to mingle with each other, go through the motions and say we cross the T's and die. That's not us. The Lord's church is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's the Lord's people. The Lord's people are priests of God. That's the Lord's people. Lord's people are changed people. That's the Lord's people. The Lord's people are people who go about doing good. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says something so wonderful about the apostles. It says they took notice of them that they had been with Jesus. That's us. What kind of people are those? What kind of been with Jesus? What do they do? They act like him. Man, if you go down there, they won't do you number good. That's what Moses said. Come with us. We'll do you good. That's the Lord's people. It's so tragic whenever somebody has a bad report on the Lord's people because that's not who we are. We don't go about doing evil. Jesus went about doing good. That's us. You want to find us? Find us using our instruments for righteousness. You want to find us? We'll be those people helping somebody out down the street with their lawn. We'll be the ones picking up sticks after the storm. We'll be the ones going door to door and handing out pamphlets for good. We'll be the ones baking cakes for neighbors and inviting people. That'll be us. We'll be. How many hospital visits can you make? How many times can you check on the, the sick? How many prayers can you offer? They're your members. And the change is we've died, we've been buried, we've risen, we're new people. It's not the same people. As a result of that, they don't do the same stuff. They don't talk the same. They don't think the same. They don't use their body and their members. The, no, not them. They were running away from sin as quickly as they could get there. They know bondage, and now they know freedom. Sin has no place here. And we got a new master. How much good can you do? Let me ask you another question. How much time do you have? Not today. Don't look at the clock. <laughs> How much time do you have left in this life? Now, with whatever number or time frame you put into your mind, let me ask you this. What are you going to do with it? These members? Your members? The members of Righteousness. The power and blessing. I, I want you to think about this as you go through the week. Think about waking up free from sin. Think about waking up free as a free servant of God. The power of a free, holy, righteous life. Spend some time this week thinking about that. A life of submission to God. A life free from Satan's influence, from sin's mastery, and from self-sabotage. I'm not looking at a sinner in the mirror. I'm looking at a saint. Not by my might, but by the precious blood of Jesus who died for me, loved me, and gave himself for me. Why? Because I share the image of God. What are you trying to accomplish in your walk with God? What are you trying to become in your walk with God? What are you trying to be? Think inward, not outward. I beg you this morning, don't just attend worship. But yes, attend worship. 
but don't make that the end. Don't just read the Bible. Read the Bible, but not just that. Jesus didn't come to turn us into outwardly focused New Testament Pharisees. He came to teach us his ways. He came to give us his mind. He came to save us from our sins, to make us his disciples, to free us from sin, to unplug us, to unbind us, and to set the captive free. And so finally, consider the knowledge of sin and its deceit. That's verses 14 and 15. What does he say? He returns to the thought again of sin and its deception. He says in verse number 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know? That's what he says it again. He says it up in verse 3. And he says it now again. Do you not know? Sin can't force us to sin. It can deceive us, trick us, manipulate us, try to convince us, but can't force us. We have to present ourselves, and so we've chosen not to do that. If you don't present yourself as sin servant, then sometimes here's what happens when we talk about practicality. We will say things like, well, just don't go there. Well, that's fine. But what we've been talking about is the motivation not to go there. Is there a place not to go? Yes, if that's your struggle, don't do it. But why would you not go? Because I see now that's not where I need to be. I see now the evil in that and its actions. I see what it did to my life. I don't want it. I'm going to run far away from that place, not because I can control the place, but because I can control my mind, and my mind tells me I'm a servant of righteousness. Paul said the strength of law is the sin, is sin is the law. And Paul will say in Romans 7, that sin taking advantage of me through the law deceived me. And then he will say, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so Paul says, listen, you're not under sin. You're not under sin at all. Paul will again liken our resurrection to Christ's death, and he will say, death couldn't hold Jesus, and sin can't hold you. How do we change? Consider yourself. What do you see when you see you? Consider yourself properly. You are dead to sin if you're a Christian. Therefore, you're free. You're free from sin. You have a new master. It's not sin. And so when sin shows up, and he will, when he whispers in your ear, and he will, when he tries to see, I see you. You're not my master. You can't do to me anything I don't let you do to me, and I'm not letting you do it anymore. I'm under new management. I have a new master. I'm now using my members for righteousness. You know, at some point we talk about what to do. Go do some good. It is really hard to do bad when you're doing good. It is really hard to say something wrong when you're saying something right. Go be an instrument of righteousness. Now, the Christian this morning, we're going to beg you to become one. This whole process that we're talking about is how you become a Christian. Romans 6, 3 through 5 is Paul's explanation of the gospel being obeyed and the change that it does in our lives. And sometimes if you are, are invited by a member of the Lord's church, we're going to end up talking to you about this process because if you're in sin, this is the way out. And if you, you like us, know what sin is and what it's doing, it's not good. And hopefully it's been so bad that you want to run away from it as quickly as you can. You know when you're running away from sin, the one to run to is God. 
And Jesus is the way. And so we invite you this morning to believe the things that you've heard. To make up your mind on this side to repent. I don't want this life. And there's nothing here that can force me to keep living it. I don't want to continue a life of sin. I want God. And so you repent. You confess the name of Jesus and then you put the old man to death. We bury him and you rise and walk in newness of life. If you've never done that, you need to do that. Bible calls it the gospel. It's good news. You can get out of sin. What if you have? Friends, we're talking about how to change. Hopefully you'll consider yourself as Paul teaches us to do. And hopefully from this day, if not this day forward, you will only see yourself as a freed servant of God, empowered to use your members as instruments of righteousness. May God bless you as you do that. We can help you in any way this morning. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.